0: Good morning. How are you? It's uh, good to have you in God's house. We are in the book of Romans. We have made it to chapter 12. So I invite you to turn it there. uh, And we are going to dig into the first two verses. We're going to fly at amazing speed. Romans 12. Great section of uh, the book as we're going to see. I want to do something uh, before I even get into Romans uh, 12 today. I had uh, two, two academic mentors in my life, or uh, two spiritual men that impacted me more than anybody outside of, like, my parents. Uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, the apologist uh, par excellence, who trained Ze- Rabbi Zacharias, he was one of my mentors in my life. Um, and God just took him home uh, recently. He's in heaven today. Uh, my other mentor uh, passed away this week as well. Uh, and I just want to introduce him to you. Just he's, he's basically I am who I am because of his influence on my life. His name was uh, Dr. John Hartley. He had a PhD uh, in uh, Semitics from Brand- Brandeis University. Uh, and I believe, if I remember correctly, from the 70s when I had him as a professor that um he, was, uh, he, he could use 16 different languages, uh, kind of at will. He's a very smart man. Uh, he was very intimidating. I think this is probably the most I've ever seen him smile. Uh, <laughs> he was intimidating. He was so smart. Uh, and So I, I started taking classes in Old Testament uh, from him when I was 18 at Azusa Pacific University. Um, everybody told me in line when you're picking classes, do not take him. He will destroy your GPA. Um, <laughs> Well, I, I took every class that he offered uh, and then became like his, uh, he mentored me off to the side and taught me much, uh, but but a, but a really great man of God. He uh, recently went home after teaching 45 years, uh, but I ended up majoring in Old Testament two times over because of Dr. Hartley. Uh, his love for biblical languages, uh, he gave to me. Uh, his, uh, he taught me how to write critically, how to think critically. Um, there was, nobody impacted my life academically greater than him. I, I think Geisler's number two. Uh, and, and so, as I, I was, you know, reading about his, uh, his death this week, um, it really causes me to reflect on who I am now uh, and who I impact. You know, am I taking the same disciplines that he taught me and am, am I using them to live for God and impact others for God? Because none of us are going to get out of here alive, Right. Uh, yeah and so what matters most is how we impact the people for Christ that matters in eternity and so I'm sure his rewards are great but when God moves you on who will you have uh, challenged in their biblical thinking to be greater uh, that's something to consider let's pray God I just thank you for uh, Uh, people who live uh, a a Christian life like they should and call us forward call us onward and upward to greater things Hartley indeed was one of those kind of men thank you for his influence on my life and on on the lives of thousands of students who teach the word of God worldwide And pray you would bless uh, the work of their hands this day. And may we, in turn, give a strong thought to how we impact those about us. Might be children, might be a mate, might be a classroom. But might we live in such a way that they can see what it means to follow hard after you. And we give you praise for Paul. Because he was one of those kind of people that uh, called people to greater living. And we're going to see that as we study Romans 12 today. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, What's the Christian life all about? Uh, well, you can reduce it down to these two verses in the book of Romans. In fact, this is the Christian walk: verses one and two of Romans chapter twelve. How many? How many have this memorized? Most Christians do. Yeah, you do. You kind of got the cool California thing going on. It's just, yeah, I've got, I've got it. How many have this memorized? Yeah, a lot, a lot of you do. Um, I memorized it as a kid uh, back in 1967 when I became a Christian uh, because uh, when I went to the pastor's class for new Christians, I was nine years old and the rest of the class were basically a bunch of adults and and me, you know? And so I'm sitting there and the pastor is handing out these things for, you know, how to to live the Christian life. He's going to show us the ropes. And so he, remember mimeograph machines? Remember the odor of a mimeograph machine? The noise of a mimeograph machine? Um, he had, he had made all these little Bible packets that he gave to each student. And he said, I'm going to give you these packets at the beginning of the class. And By the end of our, I think we had like six sessions with the pastor in his office. Uh, he said, when we are finished, I want you to have all these memorized. Like, I'm going to test you. And, I, and so, I memorized them back then in the King James, which is what I used back then. Um, and I, you know, as a new Christian at nine years old in 1967, I'm thinking, why is he having me memorize these verses? Like, First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. That was another verse he threw in there. Because he knew that sometime after nine years old, I was going to (laughs) sin. And I would need to confess. And then he throws in Romans chapter 12. Uh, Here's what it says therefore Paul says I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice which he says is acceptable to God and he says this is your reasonable service of worship and then he says do not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind why? what's the purpose of that? well so that you might prove what the will of God is and then he tacks on parenthetically well that which is good and that which is acceptable and that which is perfect that in and of itself is everything I live for That's all I think about basically as a Christian. Because God wants you to move from uh, immaturity, childhood, to adulthood, maturity. Throughout your life. How do you do that? Uh, That's what those two verses are about. So if I were to take those verses and boil them down to a a main idea, which I didn't understand at nine years old. But just the main idea. What's what's Paul getting at here? Uh, Here's how I'd summarize it. Radical. Because God wants radical transformed living uh, as you change from the old you to to the new you in Christ. Leads automatically to radical informed living. Meaning the more I live for God, the more radical that looks to my world that doesn't live for God. But the more I do that, the more I understand the mind of God and what he wants from my life. And that's informed. So that when I make decisions in life, I know what he wants from me. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, but this is the essence of the Christian life, that you mature in Christ. And so, when you look at the, the text, it says uh, in the New American Standard Version, therefore, I urge you. So, we have to stop there because if you take any classes on Bible hermeneutics or Bible study methods, they will tell you, when you see the word therefore there, it's therefore a reason. You must pause and, and wonder why. In the Greek, the word is un. So, when you see un, you understand this is a like an attorney summarizing an argument. He's moving from, I've given you all this evidence, now I'm going to bring it to a conclusion, what does it ostensibly mean? And so Paul uses this quite a bit because he's a very reasoned kind of debater kind of person. So he's going to move from the first 11 chapters where he talked about the doctrine of justification by faith. He's going to move from that, therefore in light of that, I need to talk to you about sanctification. He's going to move from justification, chapters 1 to 11, to sanctification or doctrine to practice. Because if you just study a whole lot of doctrine and you never apply it, You're just like a smart sinner. (laughs) It's true, isn't it? Or you're arrogant, you're arrogant. Uh, When I was taking Bible study methods by Dr. Howard Hendricks, another great professor, uh, he came back from teaching uh, at a conference on a weekend. So on a Monday, we asked him, hey, how'd that go for you yesterday? Because he was teaching Ephesians. Uh, And he said, well, uh, uh, a guy came up to me after uh, his his weekend teaching. He was one of the best teachers to walk the planet. And he said, the guy told me, he said, well, Dr. Uh, Hendricks, you know, I... I've been all through, this is in Texas. I've been, all, I've been all through that book of Ephesians there. I know everything it is about that. Uh, and and uh, Dr. Hendricks looked at him and said, well, that's really nice. But what I'm concerned with is, you might have been all through this book, but how many times has the book been through you? <gasps> that's what professors do. They convict you, like instantly. See, that's what it's about. Doctrine leads to Practice practice. And so uh, as I told you last week, as I showed you a chart about eschatology, remember that? Were you here or were you new? Were you here last week? You remember the chart on eschatology? Um, What would church be without it? I said this last week, but what would church be without a chart? Don't you love charts? I do. So what we want to do, we're going to go from sanctification or uh, justification that when you come to Christ in repentant faith, you as a sinner are declared righteous in his courtroom. But now he's going to switch to sanctification so, what's the, what's the comparison between the two? So, we're going to go through this quickly to set the tone for the next five chapters. Justification, what's that all about? Can you see this? Good. You're not lying. You can see this? Uh, justification, what's that about? It's objective. At the moment of faith, you are declared righteous in God's courtroom. It's a legal act, it's God's work for us. You can't work to be justified, uh, which is what all false religions are trying to do, by the way. You, uh, when you are justified, He gives you the imputed righteousness of Christ because you didn't have any righteousness. He gives you the righteousness of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1 1.3. It's based on the past death of Christ. Uh, it, is a, it is the basis of sanctification or holy living. Because you can't be holy unless you're first justified. Uh, it, is a finish, it is finished at the moment of conversion. It remains constant. You always have it. That's why you can't lose your salvation. Uh, and it's based on faith. And it's totally positional. Sanctification on the other side of the, uh, of the chart is subjective. It is being made righteous. It's a life time pursuit. Uh, It is a life process. It is God working in us. It is imparted righteousness as you're obedient to God. He gives you more practical righteousness to match your positional holiness. Uh, It's based on the present ministry of Christ in heaven. It results in just, it's the result of justification. It's finished at the moment of glorification. So if you come to me after the service and you say, you know, I really, I haven't said anything funny yet, but but I'm going to. If you come up to me out of the service and you say, you've been here too long. You know what I mean? You're just totally tracking with me. If you come to me out of the service and you say, you know, I, I really didn't need that. I didn't really need that sermon this morning because I've arrived spiritually. Uh, no, you haven't. Because you don't arrive to a, a state of total uh, sanctification, holiness, until glorification. So justification, you get saved. sanctification I live in light of my justification I try to match my practice with my position and then one day Jesus calls me home and when I stand in his presence I'm glorified then you've arrived imagine that day anyway back to my sermon so what does Paul say about wanting to talk about sanctification in chapters 12 13 14 and 15 and then 16 is just goodbye letter to his friends that he loves He says, I urge you, I urge you, brethren, I urge you. Parakaleo is the word in Greek. Uh, This is not a mild suggestion. He's not saying to you, it'd probably be a good idea if you contemplated living a holy life. That's not what he's saying. When he uses that particular word, parakaleo, I urge you uh, constantly to be thinking about what I'm going to tell you. He's imploring you. It's like the coach grabbing your pads and he's in your grill of of your helmet and he's talking to you. Do you know what I'm saying? And you want to really listen to him. He said, I'm imploring you, pay attention to the main verb I'm using here, it's present tense, that you need to pay attention to what I'm going to tell you about radical Christian living. Because you're supposed to move from your position to practice. How do you do that? Well, first of all, he's going to give you, in my estimation, what is called the reason for radical living. He's going to lay that out in the first verse. Therefore, Paul says, I summarize my argument by urging you, brothers in Christ, And I do so by the means of the mercy of God. Now, we're a church. If you're new, we love grammar. I love grammar. uh, Because I was a Hebrew and Greek scholar back in the day. and I still read it. uh, You know, pretty much every day. Um, The prepositions are so exciting, aren't they? I mean, aren't you excited about prepositions? I mean, I am. Because they mean things grammatically in the argument. And remember, Jesus said every jot and tittle is inspired. So it matters why he chose one preposition over another. So Paul says, as I talk about radical Christian living, pay attention to the preposition by. What's this all about? Well, by means by means of. I pursue holiness. My motivation, the foundation of my pursuit is the mercy of God. It's the means that motivates me. When I think about what he's done for me on the cross, if that doesn't change me into wanting to follow hard after him, I may not even know him. Because mercy, for me, a sinner, humbles me and makes me want to follow hard after him in my life. Isaac Watts wrote many uh, hymns uh, in, in the hymn book. He wrote this one about the mercy of God. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote such a sacred head for one as such as I? Answer is, yes. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do. When I think about the fact you died for me, Isaac says, that mercy motivates me to give my life away to you. That's amazing. He wrote another old hymn about the mercy of God. When I surveyed the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, he says, I count, but what? Loss loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Fifth stanza, he says, we're the whole realm of nature, mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands three things. My soul, my life, my all. Everything about me. I owe to him because he was merciful to me, a sinner. So what's the, what's the reason for radical living that Paul calls us to? The mercy of God mercy of God. I want to live a transformed life in light of what he's done for me. So how do I go about doing that? That's going to be what he's going to talk about in the last part of verse 1 and verse 2. He's going to give you what I would call the road to radical living. He's not going to just tell you go do this. He's going to tell you how to go do this. I mean, talk about a great coach. So what's he say? What's, what's the roadmap to radical Christian living? What does he say? Well, you need to present your bodies as a what? A living and... It's a holy sacrifice. Then there's a comma. And he says, if you do this, this is acceptable to God. Uh, and he says, oh, and by the way, let me throw in this parenthetical idea. This is your spiritual service of worship when you do this. So let's analyze that. Because we love analysis. Do we not? Yeah. And so w- let's analyze it. He says, if you want to live a radical life before God, a holy life, how's that start? It, w- with that word that, that we don't really like a whole lot. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. I got to give up stuff. To live this way, so in the Old Testament, when you brought a sacrifice to the the, the priest, like uh, I know you love Hebrew uh, uh, Leviticus, so go read Leviticus, read chapter one. Uh, exciting reading about the offering of burnt the burnt offering. When you brought the lamb of the first year to God, this was expensive for you to do. It's going to cost you a lot because you can't breed this lamb. You're, you're giving up your best to God apply that to giving when you think about it I give God my best not my leftovers but another sermon series you, come to the, you give your uh, lamb to the priest you go to the temple you lay your hands on the, the lamb you confess your sin on the lamb that little lamb is then killed by the priest and, the, and then its body is then thrown on the altar of fire and the fire of God burns the, the sacrifice which tells you my sin has been displaced to the sacrifice how much of that little lamb was sacrificed all of it you know, Paul says, if you want to live a, god, a godly growing life, maturing in the faith, you've got to understand the, the fact that you don't just die one time as a Christian. You're, di- you're, you're all about every day dying more to yourself and living more for him. Of giving up your life to ask God, what do you want from me? I sacrifice for you. What did Darren say last week at the end of the service? Were you here? Well, He's going somewhere else, right? That did not sit well with me. Because I love Darren. So I told you last week, my, my head is hearing and processing what he's saying. My heart's going, huh? And then I read this text for this week. And what's God saying? You want to follow hard after me? You got to give things up. And I'm thinking, why do you have to make the sermon so practical? <laughs> you, you know? You know, so I called Darren, you know, talked to him yesterday, see how he was doing while he was in Texas and everything. I mean, it, that's a providential will of God for him to go do that. I totally believe it. But aligning your heart and your head is a difficult, Is it not? It is, but I can trust God that way because I understand I am supposed to be living sacrificially. As a husband, I've been married 39 years. Now, my wife will tell you that I still have room for improvement. You know? And it's, she's counting money right now. She's part of the team. Uh, but um, she would tell you uh, there's room for improvement. There's room for her to improve. She's not here. We can talk about it. I mean, but... <laughs> But it's a daily sacrifice that I have to give up things. So when I get up in the morning, you know, before we go on a couple mile walk, and I read my Hebrew Bible, that's what I do in the morning. I I connect with God and I read. I force myself to read. It's not simple. It's not reading like English. You're reading right to left and up and down. It's it's, it's a thing. But it's a discipline. Because I can connect with God through the language that's going to be the language of heaven, as I've told you before. So just get a head start. But it's that daily sacrifice. He says, if you want to live a godly life, then learn to give your life as a sacrifice. Give up things that you love to follow hard after me. I don't know about you, but I, by definition, I'm stingy. And you're thinking, that's just terrible for him. (laughs) Are you? Are you? When I was out in California a couple weeks ago, and I was, I, I think, I don't know if I told you this, but watching my grandson at two play with his new car, you know, I bought him a new car. It was like nine bucks. I was like, what happened to the price? You know, and he took it. and Next thing I know, the windshield's broken out of it. I'm serious. Bam! And, I, and I, told, I told my daughter, I said, honey, I still have all the original Matchbox cars with no scratches, no dents, no dings. I have all the original Hot Wheels, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them. And the original boxes, the Hot Wheels cars, I got them all from the 60s. I'm going to sell them and retire one day. He's not touching them! <laughs> I had some people from our last service trying to take them off my hands. What a... What a godly. They wanted to help me be sh- sh- to share. <laughs> this is an interesting church. See, it's a living holy sacrifice. I give God things that are dear and dear to me. But I, I give things up that I hold dear to to say, God, that, well, that's all about you. Sacrifice. See, when you live a holy life to God, it's all about sacrifice. You, you trust his sovereignty and you let things go. And you follow hard after. And when's the last time you did that? here's a prayer to pray this afternoon. And I'm going to tell you the prayer and I'll automatically know you're going to say to yourself in your head, well, I won't pray that real soon. (laughs) Because when you do, if you pray it at one o'clock, God will answer at 105. Here's the prayer. Lord, forgive me for being selfish and show me in my life where I can be sacrificial as a husband, as a son, as a student, as a whatever. You show me, I tell you what. He will tell you instantly. Will he not? He will. And when you live in such a sacrificial way, uh, Paul says when you do this, he says this is acceptable to God. He loves that. And he says this is your spiritual service of worship. It's your spiritual service of worship. I think the King James reads this is your reasonable service. That's a little closer to the Greek. I'll give you the Greek word and you totally know Greek when I give you the word. Logikon. What's that? See how easy it would be to learn Greek? Just learn the alphabet. You can pronounce the words. You got it. I'm lying. So, lo- logic on. Uh, logical. He says, if, when you sacrifice and live sacrificially, it's the logical thing to do. What's our world tell you? Oh, get all you can, man. Don't give up anything. No, he says, you know, you live sacrificially, give up things in your life, confess things, move to godliness, and when you do that, uh, God says this is the logical thing to do in your worship of him. You know, you, wherever you are, whether you work at the Pentagon with no windows, Navy Yard. Oh, somebody's laughing. Yeah, yeah. It just looks like the building has windows, doesn't it? Yeah, I've been there before. It's like, whoa. I mean, you might be stuck at a cubicle, you know? And, uh, what, there are like 40 floors down below the ground of the Pentagon or something, you know? I mean, you're down in the darkness. But down there you can worship. How? Well, by being sacrificial. You know, maybe somebody else, I mean, say, say you're a Navy captain, you want to be an admiral, and say somebody, you're, and you're up, it's your second look, and you're going for your third look, and you're like, I think I totally got this, and then they give the rank to someone else, and you see them, and you're thinking, hey, I praise God for you, man, that's wonderful. Now, you're probably thinking, should have been me. You see what I mean? When it's, you, you, you get the picture. It's it's that sacrificial thing. He says, when you give up things, when you live sacrificially, you have just worshiped God right then. Does worship happen in this building? Yeah, yeah. But it really happens wherever you are, at school, as a teacher, dealing with students. When you teach those students and train them and love them like Christ would, in that loving of them when they're unlovely, when they're not happy and they're mean, when you love them anyway, you've worshiped God. That's maturity. When's the last time you sacrificially lived in such a fashion how do you go about doing that in the in the real well paul gets real and gives you two commands one's negative one's positive said oh you want to live sacrificially let me tell you how to do it says verse two don't be conformed to this world really don't be conformed to the world it's a negative command when you take a negative no or may in greek and you wed it to a, a present tense verb it means stop doing what you're doing translated he's telling the romans hey i hear you're conforming to the godless roman culture Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, The word for uh, to be conformed, I'll give you the Greek word and you'll know the word instantly when I tell it to you. Uh, Schema. Sounds like what? Scheme. Schematics. A scheme. It means don't look at the things outside of you and replicate them in your life that are from the world, that are godless. Because this is totally what happens, is it not? I mean, I had a young man one time uh, uh, tested off the grid, was put into the Navy school to be trained as as a nuclear engineer in a submarine. And he called me one day when I was mowing my yard, and he said, "Hey, Pastor, you know, all the guys on the weekends get a furlough and they go drink and party all weekend, and I'm really worried about him. I think I should go be the designated driver." That's what he asked me. Well, I knew this young kid, and I told him, "You have the propensity to do what all your friends are doing. You're not a strong Christian." Are you telling me I shouldn't go and be the DD? No, you shouldn't go. Oh, okay, thanks. So I started my mower back up and continued to mow. And then I found out weeks later that they kicked him out of school as, a, as an engineer. Why? Well, he went to be the DD. And then he became the buddy that drank with him and got drunk with him. And they eventually dismissed him. He said, I mean, conform, don't conform to the world. Don't conform to, don't do what they're doing. Uh, here's a illustration from YouTube. It's a, it's a Ray-Ban commercial. It would, yes, it's spiritual, which kind of puts it in perspective, this whole conforming to the world thing. So just kind of go with this for a minute, okay? Darren picked the song, not me. Cindy Lauper, remember her? Yeah. No, i be there and i see your truth. I didn't pick the song. Darren picked the song. I picked the video. Because isn't that, isn't that the way that it is? I mean, like if you, if you're hanging around godless people, you're going to be like that commercial. It's like, oh, they're doing this morally or immorally. Hey, I'm doing that. And all of a sudden you kind of emulate their behavior. I mean, I had, I grew up on the border of Mexico. I mean, I've told you, I mean, I had rough friends. Um, one of my friends, because I played baseball, and we had a huge stadium, sunken dugout, totally cool. And it was wire mesh on the back, so the people from the stands could come up, you know, a couple feet, you know, and, and reach down to the dugout. I had one of my friends selling uh, marijuana at the end of the bench during games. The coach was like, hey, what, what's Lesmo doing down there? Oh, no, he just knows a lot of people in the stands. <laughs> Hello? You know, it's like, are you kidding me? See, these are the kind of friends I had. So if you hang around Lesmo long enough, you're going to be going, hey, could I have me, have me one of those? You know, I knew these guys, I grew up with them. My dad was a federal agent, so of course I'm not going to touch the stuff. You know, <laughs> like, uh, where are you getting all that stuff from, Lesmo? But I mean, when you hang around those kind of people, you start doing what they're doing, right? I mean, think about it this way. I've heard this scenario a whole bunch of times. Uh, You're unhappy with your marriage, you want to get a divorce. So you come talk to me, and you ask me, can I do it biblically? And you give me the reasons why, and they don't match biblical criteria. And I've got to go with the Word of God. So I will tell you, the Bible doesn't support what you want to do. I mean, get counseling, work through it, God will bless you. But what do you do? Because I've seen it a zillion times. You go out and you surround yourself with a whole bunch of godless people who will tell you, oh no, it's okay, go right ahead. And then you go right ahead. See, that's that whole conforming to the world. See, break it down. It's real. It's real like that. See, don't, Paul says, you want to grow up in the faith? Don't conform to the world. You have to ask yourself, Is another prayer to pray. God, where am I in my life right now conforming to the world where I should not be? Whether it's lifestyle, materialism, how they think, etc. How am I conforming? Godliness moves against that. Um... Pick away. I, I started jotting down ideas. I wrote down so many bullet points of how our world does that to us. I'm not even going to tell you all of them. They're, you can read them online in my sermon when I post it. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration in uh, Matthew chapter uh, uh, 17, when he transfigured before the disciples, uh, he, he radically changed. And that's what we want to be about. Paul, Paul says, why would you want to conform to the world, to what the world does? He, he says that these things are just, they're just temporary things. Uh, why would you want to conform to that which is temporary, not eternal? That's what it is. is. Second Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter puts it this way, verse 11. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? I mean, basically, God's going to send a supernova and then nuke the cosmos. Reboot it and start over and merge into heaven. In the light of all this, the fact that all the stuff of the world doesn't mean anything. What matters is that, are the heavenly things, the eternal things, the godly character. He said, why would you want to invest yourself in things that are transitory? <laughs> Absolutely. God's will is for you to not be conformed to the world. On the other side, it's to be transformed. Transformed. He says that. Be, positively be transformed by the renewing of your mind transformed. Uh, the word, it's another Greek word. It was easy to learn. Morphe is the word. Morphe or morph. Uh, you got kids? You watching the Transformers series? I mean, what are happening to the, all those little cars and things are flipping into something else? Uh, if you don't really understand transforming, then just watch, watch Chip and Joanna Gaines. <laughs> Am I wrong? And what, what's the name of the show? Fixer Upper. I, I've watched a zillion of these shows. I can tell you how they go. It is a spiritual experience because at the end, they go from this trashed out house, this dump over here to amazing, right? And so they take the couple and they put the couple in front of the house and they have the, that big screen put up there and then it's on wheels and then they pull it away and whoever looks at this new improved everything, whoever looks at that and goes, what's the best you could do? <laughs> Nobody does that. When they roll it away, it's like, ta da! It's awesome. They always take a commercial break right before that happens. It drives me insane. You know what I'm saying? Just show it to me. I don't want to buy your product because you're like, anyway, moving on. Um, So, what is transformed living? It's radical. You morph into something that you weren't before. Those homes morph into something that they weren't before. You should be changing into something that you were not before. As a man, as a woman, as a young man, as a young woman. You should be totally different at at this, this, this day. Should be different than who you were last week. Constantly changing in my attitudes, in my personality. Everything changed. Morphing, being changed. Uh, Jesus, when he was... uh, Transfigured. We'll go back to that. Matthew chapter 17. Uses the same word. The whole, same morph word. Uh, and this particular word in the Greek text uh, is metamorpheo. Meta uh, is a preposition. When you wed a preposition to a verb, you intensify its meaning. He says, don't just transform, kind of. Radically do it. Notice Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They just thought he was just, well, just a 30-year-old Jewish man. It says he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. His face did what? Well, it shone like the sun. Uh, and his garments, well, they just were pulsating with the light of God. All of a sudden, they realized, wow, this is God standing here. This is God transfigured. See, this should be you. That's what will happen to you when you see God face to face. You lay down the earthly tent. You pick up, take up the heavenly dwelling, which will reflect the glory of God. But in the meantime, you should be so transformed in, well, how you love your wife, how you love your children, how you work at your job how you people, treat people who've wronged you. You should be totally changing in all of those things, morphing to where you can look back a year and go, I'm not the same man I used to be. I mean, the old me is being replaced by the new me. Is that true for you? The old me is being replaced by the new me. Transformation. How do you get transformed? Paul tells you in case you don't know. He's a really good teacher, isn't he? He says you get transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the problem is the mind, isn't it? The mind thinks these things and projects them out into your life. Renewing of the mind. He says, uh, He says, take your mind and let it be renewed. And this transformation verb that he uses here uh, is a passive imperative, not an active imperative. That may mean nothing to you as an English reader. It's huge in Greek and it's huge for theology. The fact that he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, he puts it in the, in the passive tense uh, structure of the, of the verb. It means that the object is being acted on by an outside source. If it was active, the object of the verb would be doing the action. What does that mean? Well, if it's an outside force doing the action, and I'm the object of the action, it means there's a force outside of me changing me into the likeness of God. Who's that? God. God takes your mind and all of its issues that you inherited when you were born with Adam's sin. And at the moment of salvation, he saves you. But now he wants to transform your mind into his, into his mind. He's working on your mind constantly, transforming that into a new mind. He does that in a variety of ways through the presence of the spirit in your life, uh, through the reading of the word of God, through a sermon, through a godly friend. He's constantly working on the outside to make you into somebody better. Um, I went into Dr. Uh, Hartley's office one day when I was a young man, and I, and I told him, I said, I got to get real with you. You know, I, I really don't know how to take notes at your level in class. I mean, it's like over my head. I'm 18. Can you help me? And he said, sure. Sit down in this chair. So I sat down, and he went behind his desk. He pulled out a bunch of binders. He goes, here, look at these binders. Uh, these are my notes from Brandeis University when I sat in class, like you. So I began to go through the, the, his notes, handwritten notes. And he, and he showed me, he sat down and taught me how to take notes in class, revolutionized my study skills. I mean, he was an outside source teaching me greater things, do you know what I mean? I mean, when I, when I graduated from Azusa Pacific, I, I was talking to him one day near the parking lot, and, and I said, you know, Dr. Hartley, I'm gonna be leaving, going to grad school and stuff, but can you give me any advice, you know, as a godly man? And this is what he told me. He said, always live your life By reading things beyond you. I said what do you mean? He goes don't ever think you've arrived intellectually. Read things beyond your thinking. Stretch your mind. Never get stuck in an intellectual rut. Always grow and advance your thinking. This is what God wants from you. See what I mean? Outside force. Impacting me as a young man to do greater things in my mind for God. This is what Paul's talking about. God wants to renew your mind. You let him renew your mind. That's the process of godly living. And it leads to the last point. It's really what I call the purpose of radical living. If I live hard after God transformed my life by his power, what happens? What does he say? You must do all. See that word, so that? So that is telling you the result of what he just said. If you live in such a fashion, well, well what's the result of all that? What's he say? So that you as a Christian may do what? Prove. And uh, dokidzo is the Greek word. It means to test something. That you may prove or test what the will of God is. And then he says, in relationship to that divine will, he's talking about that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What's he talking about? Is he telling me that if I follow hard after God that way, that I'll know which job I'm supposed to take? No, that's not what he's talking about. Is is he saying if I live hard after God, he'll tell me if I'm a young man and I'm dating, who I should marry and who I should, no, he's not telling you that. He says he if you live a life that's not conforming to the world, is living sacrificial, and you're being transformed in the likeness of Christ, as you mature in that process, you will understand moral decisions. Boy, if our culture needs anything, would they have no moral rudder? Is this. He says, as you pursue these things I've told you as, as, as as disciplines, you'll live your life when you get into situations knowing, should I do this or should I do that? You will know exactly what you need to do because God will show you what his will is. Boy, talk about something you would want your 18-year-old to know or your 25-year-old to know. Well, number one, know God, be justified, and then learn to live sanctified. And as they live that sanctified life, they're given great moral wisdom. You wise morally, this is the way that you attain it. God grows you in wisdom. Boy, who does not need that? Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Uh, Your scriptures are most clear. We might say we don't understand some of the things that we can rationalize our behavior or our inaction. Uh, But your word is most clear that we are to look at our lives, move away from things we've conformed to that we shouldn't. We are to morph into your likeness by allowing our minds to be transformed into Christian godly thinking. Forgive us for being stingy, Uh, for holding on to things we should let go of. Forgive us for having small thoughts about you uh, and for not allowing our lives to be changed into your likeness. Show us how to do that beginning today and give us great moral wisdom to live in such a way that all around us can see that we know you and that lifestyle will call them forward in the faith. In Christ's name, amen.